of Hebrews. And while you do that, um, I am going to read the second paragraph of our confession to you. We started looking at the way that our confession summarizes the doctrine of justification. And this morning we are on paragraph two. And it says this, Faith that receives and rests on Christ in His righteousness is the only instrument of our justification. So, how is one made right with God? Right, We are uh, receiving and resting on Christ in Christ's righteousness. Yet it does not occur by itself in the person justified, but it is accompanied by every other saving grace. It is not a dead faith, but works through love. And so... Uh, the confession there showing us the relationship between uh, faith and works that we have received a faith that is not a dead one, but is a, it is one that increasingly loves God and loves other people. And so uh, that is paragraph two of our confession in chapter 11. Like I said, Hebrews chapter 7 is where we are going to camp out. And particularly, I want to look at verses 11 on through um, 28. And so we, have, we looked some at Hebrews last week, and, um, and we're going to look more at it again as we consider Christ as our uh, eternal high priest. And so allow me to read these verses to us, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in together. <clears throat> the Word of the Lord says this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him quoting Psalm 110.4 here. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, okay, quoting Psalm 110 again, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We thank you, God, for our high priest, Christ. And Lord, as we consider the significance of that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to think well. But God, I pray that it wouldn't, what we consider doesn't stay in our heads, Lord, but that it connects to our hearts too. So help us. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we confess that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So we... For the month of December, we have been um, considering the, 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 the meaning of the, the coming of our Creator, the coming of, of Jesus, and, and we're specifically contemplating how Jesus is coming, his, his incarnation, right, the second person of the Trinity becoming a man, how that was at the same time the fulfilling of the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And last week we thought through Christ as prophet, and this morning we're going to think through Christ as our great high priest. And there are a lot of places just in the book of Hebrews that we could turn to and consider together Jesus as high priest. And admittedly, there's no way for me to even unpack all of the verses that I just read for you in the the short time that we have together this morning. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews, it considers Jesus as high priest quite extensively. But I wanted to read a passage to you that helps to demonstrate the superiority or the supremacy of Jesus as high priest. I even mentioned just in passing last week in the sermon that, uh, that the book of Hebrews, which really was a, a sermon to Jewish Christians, to Hebrew Christians, that um, one of the goals of the preacher to the Hebrews was to show the supremacy or the superiority and the sufficiency of Jesus. And so the passage I read to you this morning, I think, is a, a, a key passage in demonstrating the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus as our high priest. And it has at the same time um, the Old Testament background, uh, which I think is significant for us to consider together. And if you were to survey chapters 5 to chapter 9 of Hebrews, you would notice that the, the preacher to the Hebrews, he labors extensively in making sure that the church sees Christ as the ultimate high priest and that they uh, see that the Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ being the high priest. And if you were to survey Hebrews chapter 5 through chapter 7 specifically, it could be considered an exposition of the Old Testament background regarding the high priest and its application to Jesus. For instance, we see, and I, I made note of this when I was reading the passage to you a moment ago, but we see uh, just in our sh uh, short passage here in, in Hebrews chapter 7, 
uh, we see the preacher to the Hebrews quote Psalm 110, um, chapter 4 specifically. We see him quote that twice, and it's quoted eight times uh, from Hebrews chapter 5 to Hebrews chapter 7. And in fact, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. So this is a significant psalm for us to consider as it relates to Jesus Christ and it finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But we also see Genesis chapter 14, which in our passage this morning isn't quoted, but it's assumed, right? It's assumed that the Hebrew Christians would know this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, right? It's the historical background. And and we need to spend some time considering Psalm 110 and Genesis chapter 14 and how that relates to Christ. Um, So like I did last week, before we begin to dive into our text more, let me give just a a little bit of a working definition for high priest. And this will be uh, probably too much for you to shorthand, but you can write down some key words perhaps. Uh, Now, there's more to it than what I'm about to give you, uh, but there's not less than what I'm about to give you, okay? But a high priest was a man selected from the tribe of Levi to minister to God's people, and he acted as an intercessor between God and man. He made sacrifices as prescribed by God to satisfy God's righteous wrath for the sins of his people and to satisfy God's righteous righteous wrath even for his own sins, the high priest's own sins. So when we think, uh, kids, of of the temple, okay, when when you read about the temple, when you're reading the Old Testament and, and maybe your mom and dad read some parts of the Old Testament and you see things like animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, the high priests were the ones doing the animal sacrifices, Okay, when we think about high, the high priest, they were kind of at the center of the religious life of God's people, and they were a type of, of mediator between God and man. And, and that would be a good way for us to think about the high priest, is a mediator between God and man. So that, that's a little bit of just a bird's eye view. Again, that it's not less than that, but there's so much more that we could fill in there, but that's the bird's eye view of the high priest. Now, look back with me, and I would encourage you to have, you know, have your Bibles open, have, have it turned to Hebrews chapter 7 as I'm speaking. But the first thing I want us to see, and I've mentioned this already, okay, is that the preacher to the Hebrews, he quotes from Psalm 10 verse 4, right? When he says in verse 17, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then later, if you're looking, drop down to verse 21 when he says, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And again, when you read especially chapters 5 to 7, you'll see that he really wanted the, the church to, to see and understand that Psalm 110 is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, right? It's about Jesus as king, if you're familiar with Psalm 110, and we're probably going to look at Psalm 110 again next week and consider Jesus as king by looking at Psalm 110. But the first part of it is considering Jesus as king. The second part of it is considering Jesus as high priest. Now, let's spend a few minutes on this Old Testament 
background because I think it's important for us as we're looking to consider the significance of Jesus fulfilling the office of high priest. And, and the best way, again, to do that is by us considering this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. Okay? He's, he's mentioned several times in our chapter. He's mentioned several times in the early chapters of the book of Hebrews uh, as, as the author of Hebrews is trying to draw parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus, and there are parallels that we need to see. And almost everything that we know about Melchizedek we find in Genesis chapter 14, particularly verses 17 to 24. And I'm not going to read that section. I'd encourage you to read that section. Uh, but here's what we know in summary form when we take the Genesis 14 passage, when we take Psalm 110, when we take our Hebrews passage that we're looking at. Okay, Melchizedek, he was a man that uh, Abram, and kids, when I say Abram, I mean Abraham before he, his name got longer. But he was a man that Abram met after defeating um, this tyrant who conspired with other kings who were tyrants named Ketelalmer, okay? And he went and defeated Ketelalmer and, and these other kings in an effort to take his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped along with Lot's family and Lot's possessions. He went to to put things right and to bring Lot and his family back. And so after Abram defeats these enemies, he meets this mysterious figure called Melchizedek um, on the way home, okay? And we know that this name Melchizedek, or, or maybe it was a title rather than a name, either way, it meant king of righteousness, king of righteousness. And we also know... <clears throat> that Melchizedek was called the king of Salem, which means king of peace. Okay, and we see the author of Hebrews mention these things in verse 2 of chapter 7. We also know that this mysterious figure, that he predates the Levitical priesthood. And so the Levitical priesthood in the temple, making all these sorts of sacrifice. So, making all these sorts of sacrifices. And, and in fact, the, the, the Levites, they would have believed, they would have been looking back and would have believed that their status, their particular status in life would not rise above that of Abraham. Yet, the great Abraham, again, who was Abram at that time, we see him give a tenth, we see him tithe to this mysterious figure known as Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, we see this priest named Melchizedek. He brings out bread and wine for Abraham, and then he pronounces a blessing over Abram in the name of the triune God, and he declares to Abram that it was the triune God alone who delivered Ketelalmer and his army into Abram's hands. Now, one commentator speaking about just the mysteriousness of this figure, he says this, Melchizedek appears at only three places in the Bible. He's introduced in Genesis chapter 14 as a part of the story of Abraham. After 1,000 years and without any additional references, he suddenly appears again with a cryptic reference in Psalm 110. Then after another 1,000 years, he emerges as a major person in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews mentions Melchizedek eight times, uses the phrase the order of Melchizedek four times, and he points back both to Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 when he admonishes, just think how great he was. 
Now, look at how the author of Hebrews cites the name Melchizedek in order to describe Jesus' priestly ministry. Look back at verse 11 with me. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron, meaning the Levitical priesthood, okay? So here the the author of Hebrews, he distinguishes the difference between the Levitical priesthood and this other type of priesthood, this, um, this better priesthood, this priesthood that he says is after the order of Melchizedek. And he does this by saying that the Levitical priesthood was insufficient as it relates to delivering God's people. It never could deliver God's people, right? So a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, again, verse 15, in verse 11, the order of Melchizedek needed to come because perfection wasn't attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Now, what exactly are we getting at here? What exactly is the author of Hebrews, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Not, so he's the author of Hebrews, he's writing this for the Jewish Christians, but because this is divinely inspired and it's been divinely preserved, it's for us as well. Like, what is it that we need to see? What is it that we need to confess? What is it that the, the Hebraic church saw and confessed as a result of, of this preacher doing this hard work of showing Christ and Melchizedek and Christ coming in the line of Melchizedek? And it's this, if you're taking notes, and we're going to spend the, re- the remainder of our time teasing this out, and then I'm going to give us a charge in light of it. It's this, Jesus is a better high priest, and he makes all the other high priests, the temple, and the sacrifices obsolete. Right? Jesus is a better high priest, and he makes all the other high priests, the temple, and the sacrifices obsolete, outdated, no longer needed, never coming back. And that's good news for us, Okay? So I, I want to spend, like I said, the rest of the, our time just teasing this out because I think it's, it's rich and it is soul-nourishing and it should drive us further to Christ. It should drive us to see that Christ is all, that Christ is in all, as the author of Colossians says, the Apostle Paul in chapter 3. So first, let, let's take what we've covered regarding this mysterious Melchizedek and let's seek to connect it to Jesus as the author of Hebrews, as the preacher to the Hebrews rightly does. But, but before I do, and perhaps I should have said this already, we don't know who Melchizedek was, okay? There's some who say that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. There's some that say that he maybe was Seth, one of Adam and Eve's children. They don't know, and we don't know either, and it doesn't really matter, whether or not we know who it is. The way in which Christ is compared to him is not contingent on us truly knowing the identity of the man that Abram met. So let's revisit what we do know from the Scripture, right? what, what the Hebrew Christians would have known, and let's seek to apply it ultimately to Jesus as the author of Hebrews did. Okay, First, he was a priest before the Levitical priesthood. 
right? In other words, his, his priesthood was not bound by genealogy, unlike that of the Levitical priest. And in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, he's our eternal high priest, right? He came from the line of Judah, which was a line that Moses never mentioned as it related to priestly duties. Now, what should we conclude from, from this? I'm going to speak about this more in just a moment, but we should see as Christians and we should confess as Christians that Jesus' priesthood is not bound by time. Right? It's not bound by time. In other words, and I've mentioned this several times already, his priesthood really is eternal. It is eternal. It's a position that he has fulfilled through his coming, and he holds it forever. He holds it forever. Again, we'll revisit that in just a moment, but just kind of hold that in your minds, hold that in your heart for now. Secondly, we also see that Melchizedek was called the king of righteousness, right? The meaning of his name, king of righteousness, right? We see the author of Hebrews mentioned that a few verses earlier, and we see that he's called the king of priests as well. And who is our righteousness? Who is our peace? If not Jesus, right? If not Christ, who is it that God counts as our righteousness, right? The confession we've been reading in chapter 11 the last couple of weeks has made it abundantly clear, and the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that our righteousness is not infused in it. It is something outside of us. It's Christ that is our righteousness, and it's Christ who is our righteousness, who is the one that has made peace between us and God, right? We are by nature children of of what? of wrath. But if you're in Christ, if you share union with Christ, if Christ is your eternal high priest, there's no more wrath. You're reconciled. You have peace with your maker. He's truly the king of righteousness. He's truly the king of peace. A couple of more comparisons worth mentioning. I found this encouraging. Melchizedek, he he was the one that blessed Abraham. So he's the one that blessed Abraham, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the name of the triune God. And Abraham was the one that God promised that through him would all nations be blessed. Right? We see that promise in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. But we see that that promise, right? because we have the completed canon of Scripture, because we're all sitting here this morning, we see that that promise, and we confess that that promise pointed to a greater spiritual reality that extended far beyond physical posterity. In other words, it's in Christ that the blessing of Abraham comes to us, comes to you and me. It's Christ, it's through Christ, it's our connection to Christ that allows for us to be counted as Abraham's offspring, right? And the final comparison worth mentioning is that Melchizedek fed Abram, Abraham bread and wine. Now, I don't want to push that too far, but could this be intended by the Spirit of God to bring to our minds that Christ gave of His own body, right? that Christ gave of His own blood? Could it be intended by the Spirit of God as we come to the Lord's table this morning that we should see Christ, who is our eternal high priest, nourishing us there? So there are these connections that we should rightly make, right? And we we have exegetical reasons to, we have biblical reasons to. We see the author of Hebrews 
do the same thing. And here is what we, you know, if we begin to, to bottom line this comparison here between Melchizedek and Jesus, right? This mysterious figure known to us as Melchizedek, he gave way to another mystery, right? He gave way to a better mystery, which is God incarnate, which is Emmanuel, the Son of God in flesh who came to seek and save us, Jew and Gentile, to save us from the the penalty that our sin deserves. That is what the New Testament calls the mystery of God revealed, right? Now, keep looking at Hebrews with, with me because we see the author of Hebrews get even more direct as it relates to the significance of Jesus as our high priest. And, and remember, he, he's, he's laboring to demonstrate the supremacy or the superiority of Jesus. Okay, so the divine author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, he wants us to see Jesus as our better high priest. And what are the ways, the specific ways in which he's better? Well, in a word, and kids, if you were going to take an exam, it said, in what ways are Jesus better? Jesus is better in all the ways, right? He's better, right? But what specifically does the author of Hebrews say? First, he says that Jesus is a better high priest because he has an indestructible life. He has an indestructible life. And this goes back to the eternality of the priesthood that I mentioned a moment ago, right? Christ's priesthood is grounded in his bodily and eternal resurrection, right? Because Christ is resurrected from the dead, he is our eternal high priest, right? So we see that verses 16 to 17, verses 23 to 24 in our text. And what does this mean? This means that we don't have a need for another priest. This high priest from the line of Judah, this high priest who supersedes the Levitical priesthood is both before and he's after the Levitical priesthood, right? He's our great high priest forever, without end. And that's glorious news because this high priest is the only high priest who's conquered the grave. So he has an indestructible life. Secondly, Jesus is better because his priesthood is grounded in God's oath. He's better because his priesthood is grounded in God's oath. Quoting Psalm 110, the author of Hebrews says that the Lord has sworn regarding Jesus being our high priest. And he tells us that our God is a God that won't change his mind. We say that in verse 21. What, what's more sure than that? What's more sure than that? Right, that God would swear by his own name regarding the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Look just one chapter earlier at how the author of Hebrews puts it. Chapter 6, verses 16 to 20. This is glorious stuff right here. For people swear by something greater than themselves. Right? You ever heard someone swear? They're, 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 they're never saying, I swear by my own name, are they? They got to swear by, they're not credible enough for them to swear by their own name, right? People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, a note this final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, 
Right? So if someone ever asks you, can, uh, can God do anything? You can say, no, God can't lie. He can't tell a lie, right? It's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies, right? where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? For those of us that are filled so often with doubt and depression and despair, right? Doubt and despair, perhaps, that you have an advocate, right? Perhaps you think, yes, Jesus did this for other people, but not for me. Right? You have here, in the black and white words of Holy Scripture, right? In these words, they tell us that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, which is you and me, right? that we have a high priest forever, and God shows us this, and He guarantees us this through an oath. And we're reminded that it's impossible for God to lie, right? And He did this so that you and me, those of us who have fled to Christ, those of us who find refuge in Christ, that we can know for certain that He's our hope within the veil, that He's our eternal high priest. Listen, there's lots of days where emotively you're not going to feel this, but that doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't make it any less true about you. That, and the reason why is because God, who cannot tell a lie, God who will not change His mind, has told us that Christ is our eternal high priest, that He's our hope within the veil, that He's our access to Him forever. Right? Your access to God isn't based on your fleeting emotions. Your access to God isn't based on, man, I got it right today and I'm getting it wrong tomorrow. Your access to God's not based on you at all. It's based on Christ who's our eternal high priest. God swears by His own name. Third, we're told that Jesus is a better high priest because He's a guarantor of a better covenant. A better covenant. Right? When, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, you should be looking saying, man, something better's coming. When we get over the New Testament, when we see all that God accomplished in Christ Jesus, we say, that was it. That's what was coming the new covenant's the better covenant, which is the covenant of grace that was promised through the types and the shadows that we see, for instance, in the Levitical priesthood, right, in the temple. And they find their conclusion. They find their fulfillment. They find that they are accomplished in Christ. As we saw last week, from substance, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians, or from the shadow to the substance, which is Christ. The shadow was always pointing in that direction, pointing us toward the substance, right? Christ as our high priest has made grace possible. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. So again, we look to Jesus for the promise, the promise that was accomplished, right? And we can trust what we're still waiting for, that this guarantor of a better covenant is coming back for His people and to Make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Fourth, we see that Jesus is a better high priest because he's able to save to the uttermost because he always lives and intercedes for us. Verse 25, do you feel swallowed by your sins? Not just your past sins, but perhaps your present sins. 
And do you find yourself doubting your salvation and, and becoming paralyzed as it relates to making any sort of spiritual progress? Now, your high priest has saved you to the uttermost. That means that the strength of his salvation is greater than the strength that is your sin. Right? You can trust that he has saved you because you can trust him. And guess what? You can truly repent in light of that. You can repent because you have been saved to the uttermost. You can repent because the grace of God is stronger than the deepest stain that is your sin. So Christ has saved us to the uttermost, and he lives to make intercession. He's praying for you now. He's praying for you right now. Fifth, Jesus is a better high priest, and we could have broken all of these up and have, you know, <clears throat> a long, long list, right? Could keep going on, but Jesus is a better high priest because he's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. There's sort of a rhythm to saying that, right? As if maybe that was something being committed to memory. But Jesus, he has no sins himself to be atoned for, right? We see all this in verses 26 to 27. Those former high priests, they had to make atonement for their own sins before they could even make atonement for the rest of God's people. And even that was just a temporary atonement. But Jesus had no need of this because he's truly sinless. He's our perfect high priest. He's truly righteous, a perfect intercessor. And this connects us to the final thing to see. Jesus is a better high priest because he's the permanent sacrifice for sin. The author of Hebrews, verse 27, he died once. One time. There's no need for any more sacrifices. There's no need... For another temple to be rebuilt. There's no need for another priest, another mediator between us and God, right? Our perfect high priest, he's not just our high priest, but he was also the sacrifice, right? Our great high priest sacrificed himself for us because he was the only one worthy to deal beginning and end decisively with our sin. So we can have confidence that our sins have been forgiven, because Jesus is both our eternal high priest and he's our forever sacrifice. He was sacrificed once and that one-time sacrifice was sufficient to cover our past sins, our present sins, those sins that we will commit tomorrow. And because of that, we shouldn't despair, right? And there may be this temptation, well, you know, you're, we're, we're leaning heavily into being forgiven. What about those who would abuse the grace of God, who would be lied about it or would be, you know, treat it in a trivial manner, right? Someone whose heart's been captivated by the gospel isn't going to treat this grace in a trivial, light manner, right? This is weighty, glorious stuff. So if you belong to Christ, be reminded this morning that He's your eternal high priest, He's my eternal high priest, and His sacrifice truly was sufficient for sin, and he makes intercession for you even now. What do we do in response to this? As I was thinking about this, what, what is, what is a, a, just a practical admonition that I can give in light of this? And it's this. We have to repent of our discontentment of Jesus. 
right? And I include myself in this, right? I, I hope you know I have myself in view to any charge I'm giving you from the pulpit, but we collectively, we have to forsake all things that we turn to inwardly, turn to outwardly, to try to find peace, right? We have to turn away from lesser mediators or rather counterfeit mediators. We have to turn away from our despair. We have to turn away from our complaining. We have to turn away from our excuses and see there our sufficient high priest who's accomplished our salvation and who actively prays for us, intercedes for us. So we forsake our discontentments. And as our, our forsaking of our discontentments is at the same time us drawing near to God to find our contentment and our peace and our sure footing on our eternal high priest. I read this as our call to worship earlier, but it's a worthy passage to end on this morning, and I'll pray. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. If we didn't have hold fast to our confession, why do we hold fast to our confession? It's because so often our emotions, our sins, our stubbornness, is prone to letting it go, right? Hold fast to the confession, right, that we have a great high priest. He says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, not shyly, not let me clean myself up and then I'll come, right? That's works-based salvation. We can come boldly to the throne of grace because of Christ. And when we do, he says, we may find, obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time we've had in your word. We ask that you would strengthen us by your word, Lord, that you would help us to have a long walking, God, with you, our kids to have a long walking with you, Lord. We are grateful that we have an eternal high priest, a priest so much better than those that have gone before. And Lord, he has laid down his life once for sins, and that's sufficient and more powerful than every sin we've committed and every sin we will commit. Help us to believe that, Lord. We're so prone to doubt it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the portion of our service where we come to the Lord's table. And if you are a guest with us, we don't require uh, membership for you to be able to come to the table. What we ask is that you are a Christian who is repenting and resting in Christ alone and that you've been given a Trinitarian baptism. And so if that's you this morning, you are welcome to the table. If that's not you, we just ask that you would stay seated, that this is a, a uh, meal for God's people. And, um, and we, myself, the other elders, would love to talk to you more about the gospel, more about walking in repentance, what that looks like. But let me read the devotional. Elders, you can go ahead and begin to make your way to the elements. This is a devotional I pulled from a, um, an old dead guy. <clears throat> Thomas Case, uh, 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 a Puritan um, who lived well into the 1600s. It's called A Mill of Faith. Grounded in Philippians 4-7, The peace of God which surpasses